day. Um, also, we are starting today, our, uh, we're actually continuing our series on emotion. And um, in this whole series, um, we spent the first two weeks introducing the idea that many Christians, I think, don't know how to handle their emotions in the biblical way. And so we're looking at this uh, for, the, for five weeks or so. And we spent the first two Sundays like introducing the ideas, the big ideas. The third week we talked about, um, we discussed fear last week. And so today we're discussing um, a topic that I think is really, really important. Before I get into that, though, I want to read a quote to you by um, a guy named Matthew Elliott. And here's what he says. He says, God wants us to be emotionally mature with emotionally full lives. Becoming emotionally mature is not, as many teach, about becoming emotionally controlled. It's about becoming emotionally adept, emotionally wise, and emotionally skilled. It's about having lives that are chock full of wonder and feeling, and then having the ability and practice skill to live well and wisely in a richly emotional world. One thing I'm going to ask you guys, if your back is to me, turn this direction. Because I don't like seeing the back of your head while I'm teaching. It's just not, not helpful to anybody. So turn around so we can see you. Um, you can tune in better that way. Um, we're going to do a lot of discussion today. So um, like three sets of questions throughout the talk this morning. Um, so what I want to remind you from this quote is that emotionally mature does not mean emotionally dead. I think a lot of Christians think that to be emotionally mature means that you walk through life detached, you walk through life just um, everything's under control, everything's under wraps, and that's how you approach your life. And emotionally, con- emotionally um, mature does not mean that you're emotionally dead, that you don't feel things and feel things deeply. So we discussed fear last week. We defined fear as a negative expectation of something in the future. Now, today we're going to talk about sadness. So you guys excited to talk about sadness today? It's an exciting topic. You know, it's the beginning of vacation. It's a great uh, Sunday to address a a somewhat depressing topic. Um, But sadness is what occurs when your worst fears are realized. So there's a progression here. We talked about fear last week. And so when the worst thing you can imagine happens, this is when sadness typically kicks in in our lives. And so um, something that I've become aware of is that in spite of lots of technological advancement in our world, we still live in a very depressed society. In fact, studies have shown that the U.S. is one of the most depressed nations in the world, which sounds crazy because we have so much technology and advancement. There's still poverty. There's still hunger. There's still those things in this country for sure. But the U.S. is seen by many to be one of the most depressed countries in the nation. So in spite of our technological progress, we are, in a sense, emotionally stunted. So think of technology. Think of, um, it's amazing to me whenever I even think about a phone, like how the phone in my life has changed dramatically. So when my kids think of phone, they think of this. this is, they call this a phone. I would not have called this a phone. I would have called this like a crazy computer when I was a kid, right? This is a computer, not just a phone. But um, when I was a kid, a phone was attached to a wall, all right? Do you guys still have those in your house, anybody? 
Anyone have like the phone with the, the really frilly kind of cord attached to it? Who still has that? Raise your hand. Wow. That thing is a dinosaur. Okay, so it, so when I was a kid, a phone was like attached to a wall. You put your finger in this little hole. I had to turn it like this. Anyone have the rotary phone still? Anyone? Nobody wants to admit to it. I mean, you would, you would put your finger in and like go the nine or the zero. Took like 10 minutes, right? You'd, you'd turn it and it would like have to dial back. And um, these are like what they have in museums now, okay, these kinds of phones. And if you want to talk to someone, like there's no private conversations. Like you're standing in the kitchen talking to your girlfriend, right? And uh, the cord's like wrapping around your neck as you turn around the kitchen, right? So this, is, this was a phone when I was a kid. This is what a phone looked like. Today, this is a phone, right? This is a phone. So in spite of our technology advancement in our culture, I think we are kind of regressing and going backwards emotionally as, as a people. And so here's some stats to, um, to show you this is true, I think. Uh, 20% of teens experience depression before adulthood. So I'm going to have, um, I want to have four tables. So this table, this table, that one right there, that one. You get, go ahead and stand up real fast. Just stand up where you're at. So these four tables, if we had the room full today, which we do not, that would be about, uh, about 20% of our room right there. On a normal Sunday, it would be about four tables. So it, this is, the stats are saying that um, about 20% of the teens in our culture are depressed before adulthood. Not saying it's you guys. I'm just saying that that's the percentage, right? You guys can go and have a seat. So 20% of teens experience that kind of depression. I don't mean like just had a bad day. I don't mean just you're just down for a week or two. I mean like clinically depressed for, for teens, 20%. On average day, on an average day, someone ends their life every 17 minutes in the U.S. So... While we're doing this Sunday morning, hour and 10 minutes on Sunday morning here at the Outback, about four people will commit suicide on average throughout our country. Suicide is the third leading cause of death ages 15 to 24. Uh, I think the first one is accident. Second one is, I think, homicide. Third one is suicide between ages 15 to 24. And what's crazy is that we are the only species that I know of that actually commit suicide. Animals don't think deeply about life, right? They don't have moments of depression. Now, they have instinctual reactions. They, they, they fight. They do those things as well. But they don't, you don't ever see a lion standing at the edge of a cliff going, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it, right? Like, no one, no animal does that. They don't think about life in the way that we do. And, uh, I mean, now the, now the black widow, I mean, she kills her husband and then eats it, right? But that's different. That's homicide, right? Um, but it's the third leading cause of death among people that are your age and a little bit older um, in our culture. About 30,000 people commit suicide each year in the U.S. Uh, people under 25 account for 16% of all suicides. And then lastly... And this one really surprised me. 47 different medications were on the market for depression. 47 different medications. All because as a country, as a society, we are technologically advanced, but I think emotionally stunted. We have no idea how to handle our feelings, how to deal with things like sadness and as those things come across our lives. So something else I read this week was that teens are people your age, 
are five times more likely to be depressed than teenagers were in the Great Depression. So 1930s, there's like no food. People are in line waiting for bread. There's no, there's nothing. Like people are in dire poverty. My grandfather lived at that time, and the, the stats show that you're five times more likely to be depressed as a teen today than you were as a teen in the Great Depression. Just mind-blowing where we are as a society in this area. So with that, I want you to discuss just your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and questions one through three. All right, how are we doing? Are we through? We're good? I never want to interrupt, you see, so I'm trying to be nice about this. So, um, so there's, there's one thing I want to establish this morning before we move on to our passages today. And uh, put my next quote up on the screen here. Um, I want to establish this before we go forward. Um, the idea is this, sadness is not a sinful emotion, but it's a result of sin. I think so many Christians, you begin to see sadness itself as sinful. Like, I can't feel this way, I can't feel this kind of thing, I can't feel this in such a deep way. The fact that this is bothering me is a sin, that's not true. And we know this because um, we see God himself be grieved Be saddened by things. We'll see this in just a moment in Genesis chapter 6. So sadness, listen, sadness itself is not a sin. Sadness is to, listen, sadness is to think rightly about things that are wrong. I'll explain this. So if if I hear about um, human trafficking somewhere in the world, it's right for me to be saddened by that. Sadness is a right emotion and a right response to things on earth that are wrong. So it's a response to sin. It's a result of sin. But in and of itself, it is not a sin. So I want to encourage you this morning that if you're someone who, you've been beating yourself up because you are sad. Maybe you're sad more than other people. And maybe you have a personality that's that's a bit more just melancholy, pessimistic, whatever word you want to use. and, And you experience some things in a deeper way than other people do. And you've been beating yourself up over this issue that you think sadness itself is a sin. Why can't I be like my friends who are just, you know, happier more often than I am, right? And so I want, you to, I want this to set you free this morning that this, is, this in and of itself is not sinful to feel saddened by things in the world that are indeed wrong and sinful. That's right and just to feel that way about those things. And I want to expose you this morning to this idea that, that God himself experienced grief, experiences grief. God himself experiences sadness. We're made in his image. So our sadness sometimes is a reflection of being made in his image. This is what it means and points to. And so turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Um, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. And this is a story, this is right before God brings a worldwide flood to punish mankind for um, their sin and their depravity. So 
This is uh, Genesis 6, verses 5 to 6. Whenever you and I think of the flood, we just think of God's wrath and anger. But before there was his wrath and anger, there was this verse, these verses. Okay, listen. Verse 5 and 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So just six chapters in, and God is already grieved that he's made mankind. Now this does not mean that God is, is somehow doesn't know the future, doesn't know what's going to happen. We have to understand with the Bible that God's sovereign, he knows what's going to happen, but at the same time, he can still feel grief and sadness for what he sees in the world that you and I live in. And so he sees man's sadness, and this is the cause of God's grief and God's sadness. So again, sadness is not a sinful emotion, but it's a result of sin. Sadness comes from thinking rightly about things that are wrong in the world that you and I live in. Um, I think many of us, we see, um, we see God kind of like this robotic, detached being, right? We see God as like up there, we're down here. We think of God as just this detached, robotic being. And the Bible says that that viewpoint is wrong. That's not how God is. That's not how he views us. And so, for example, if you have, um, I want to remind you this morning that um, sadness very often comes from the love that you feel for someone else. So if you have a friend who has turned their back on God, turned their back on Christ, and you're going to feel some deep sadness and some anguish and some sorrow over that, hopefully. If you truly have care and concern and love for them, you're going to feel that um, as they begin to walk away from Christ, you're going to feel a real sadness and a grief because of their sin. If you truly care and love for them, you're going to feel some of those things. And so in the same way, this is what God feels for us. The sadness is a reflection of how much you love them. And this is the same, the same is true for us and God. If God loves us and we know that he does, then he's going to feel some grief and sadness whenever we turn our back on him. Um, I think we see this most completely. We see this, um, we don't see a detached, robotic God who has no emotion. We see the opposite of that kind of God especially in the form of Jesus. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Go all the way to the back end of your Bible. Um, Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. I'm making you guys work today on finding your passages. Of course, I need some help too up here. So Ephesians, uh, Ephesians. Let's say Ephesians. Hebrews 5, 7. Okay, here's what it says. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So I want you to watch this. Jesus did not just suffer physically on the earth. Many of us think that Jesus just, okay, he took the nails, he took the spear to his side, he took the beating, we just think of Jesus just suffering physically on our behalf. But we forget that Jesus' time on earth was emotionally gut-wrenching and traumatizing 
Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating drops of blood. He's so stressed out about the sin of mankind. He's sweating drops of blood because of our sin. Emotionally, Jesus was torn up over our sin. Emotionally, he was torn up over the fact that sin separates us from God. Emotionally, he was torn up whenever Lazarus died, not because, oh, Lazarus died, what are we going to do? It was more about Lazarus died. This is a reminder to me at the brokenness of all of humanity. This is what tore Jesus up when he was on this earth during his life. And I would say that um, because Jesus is God, many of us might think because Christ is God, that maybe he didn't experience emotion as powerfully as we do. And I would tell you that I think the opposite must be true. That Jesus Christ experienced sadness on a level that we don't even know about. Because he's God. He sees everything correctly and rightly and justly. He sees everything in its proper context, the way it's supposed to be. He knows the way things are supposed to be. And so it says to me that if that's true, that Jesus experienced sadness on a level that we never even experience in our lives. So if you struggle with this in some area of your life, I want to remind you this morning that that Jesus knows, that God knows, he knows exactly, if not more exactly, what you are going through. He knows just what you've experienced, and then some. He knows just where you are as we struggle with this kind of thing. Because what's at the cause of his suffering? What's at the cause of his emotional torment? It's his love for mankind. It's his love for us. I want to read you a quote by Tim Keller. He says, heart involvement leads to suffering. The more you love someone the more that person's grief and pain becomes yours. God is so personal that he loves us so much that his heart is filled with pain over us. It's a reminder that um, love is going to lead to this kind of sadness. Love is going to lead to this kind of grief, this kind of emotional torment and pain. And you really, when you think about it, you really have two choices in life. Your, Your two choices are this. You can love people in such a way where you're going to be sad when they sin. You're going to be sad when they turn their back on Christ. You're going to be sad when they let you down. You can live that way. Or you can go the other direction and in an effort to keep yourself from feeling those kinds of things, just not get close to anybody. Just turn off your emotions to where you don't feel anything because then no one can affect you, right? But I'm going to warn you that if you choose the second option, what's going to happen is it's going to lead to an even deeper sadness and even deeper loneliness, even deeper despair than you thought was possible. And so we really have those two options. My my fear is that many of you in the room, you're already choosing the last one. You're already choosing the one that says, okay, when I get close to people, I get hurt. It leads to sadness. So I'm just going to cut that off. I'm just going to cut off those emotions. I'm going to be detached because that's just easier. 
Right now, as I trudge through life, that's just the easier option to deal with. And my fear is that many of you are already on that path um, towards that option. And so this morning, I want us to look at, in just a moment, what it, what it means and what it looks like for us to um, explore a third option for what, um, how we can live in this way, in a more, I think, a more healthy way. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, they, when they become Christians, they think, um, and I think the church is guilty of communicating this, I think it's wrong, um, people think that if I become a Christian, I'll be happier all the time and I won't struggle with sadness. In fact, this morning, um, whenever I come down here this morning, in the morning, I, I spend about uh, 30 minutes in my office just kind of praying and reading over my notes here and writing some stuff down. And through the wall of my office, there is the children's rally room where they sing all like the happy Christian kids songs and stuff. And while I'm doing this, there is a song that says, um, what, how does it go? I'm in right, down right, upright, something right, happy all the time. Okay? Jesus Christ came in and something, what does it say? I forget the exact words. Yeah. So it's, we're, we're brainwashing our little kids at this church that to be a Christian means you're happy all the time. Okay? This is our church. This is us. And I think, okay, that's, that's fine. It's a fun song for little kids. But how often do we continue to communicate that to people as they grow and say, yeah, yeah, to be a Christian means that you're happy all the time. And so what you start to do is you start to fake this persona, this idea that, well, I gotta be, I gotta be joyful all the time, I gotta be happy all the time. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this is not biblical. This is not what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I will tell you that if you think that um, being a Christian means you're happy all the time and that's the way you live your life, I will tell you that the opposite might be true. That outside, I'll give you a warning. If you're thinking about following Christ, if you're not a Christian yet, you're thinking about following him, I'm going to give you a warning today that following him might lead to even more sadness than you experience right now. Do you know why? Because sadness is caused by loving people in a godly way. Sadness is caused by seeing things rightly. Even things that are wrong. And so you might start to think to yourself as a Christian, well, um, if I see other people suffer in sin, it's going to lead to a deeper sadness than you experienced even before you came to Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not that you're just happy all the time. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Because when you become a Christian, you see how jacked up everything is. Because you now see the world with new eyes. Tim Keller also says this. He says, it's possible that being a Christian might lead you to weep more than if you weren't a Christian. Why? Because you feel the pangs of evil, whereas before you did not. So following Christ might lead to even more sadness than you experienced before. You sign me up, right? Right? Sign us up. And so I think it's, this is true because Christians should feel things more deeply because of how you see God, how you see mankind, and how you see the world around us. With that, go into your uh, questions, just questions four through six at your tables. Okay, I'm going to take you to one last passage. Turn to Psalm chapter 77. 
in your Bibles, because I don't want to leave you hanging with just, okay, uh, you know, sadness isn't sin, or as a Christian, you might experience more of that than if you weren't a Christian. I don't want to leave you just hanging there. I want to, I want to show you this morning like, what you do with this kind of emotion. So look at Psalm 77, and what do we do with this kind of sadness? We talked last week about um, what it looks like to pray your fears, and so this week we're going to talk about what does it mean when you are sad? How do, how do you pray um, these kinds of things? Instead of, um, instead of just stuffing your, your sadness or instead of just venting it out to people and to social media, um, what are some ways to pray your tears in a sense? And so I think um, if you were to look at most Christians, I think if, if you were to look at do, do Christians most often stuff their emotion or just vent their emotion, I would say that many Christians lean towards just stuffing their emotions, especially in this area. And many people that aren't Christians, I think, um, have other ways of handling it, try, try to vent it, um, medicate it, just find some way to cope, whether it's through legal drugs or even illegal drugs, um, they will find ways to cope with their sadness and their depression. But Christians, I think, very often stuff it and be, try to be emotionally dead to whatever they're experiencing. But I want to show you this. The Psalms, the reason why I love the Psalms, the Psalms always show us another way. And this is um, an example of one of the Psalm writers showing us how to pray our emotions, how to pray um, in this kind of way. So look at Psalm 77. We'll start in verse 1. It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out with wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So he's describing for us, the problem, this place that this person is in. And this is not necessarily David. This is someone else writing this particular psalm. And he says things like, my soul refuses to be comforted. Have you ever been in a place where no matter what you do, it's like nothing seems to work? Nothing seems to get rid of the sadness that you feel like you're experiencing. Then he goes into verse 3, when I remember God. So when someone comes to him and says, it's okay, it's okay, there's always God. You need to put your faith and trust in God. When he hears the word God, like he wants to curse at that person. He wants to say, God, where's God? Forget about God. When I hear the name God, he just wants to, he just gets depressed. He just lets out a long moan of like, oh, here we go again, God. Okay, well, God got me into this mess. So this is where this person is at. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He says, you hold my eyelids open. What he's saying there, he can't sleep. He, he is so depressed and anxious and sad by whatever this has happened that his eyelids will not shut. You been there before? For some reason, when, when you try to go to sleep, the house is quiet, everyone else is asleep, and this is the time when people experience great depression and great sadness. This is the time of the day where it's the most real, to, it's the most haunting to them. 
because they can't sleep. It's like someone's holding their eyelids open. And so he's blaming God and saying, God, you're holding my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't even speak. Then look down with me at um, verse 5. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Have you ever asked God those kinds of questions before? Have you ever asked God questions like, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? God, I thought you were a good God. I thought you were a compassionate God. I thought you were a loving God. So so, so why is my life, why does it look like this if you claim to be compassionate and gracious and good? I want you to notice the brutal, just raw honesty in this passage. Just just look at it. Look, Look at the brutal, raw honesty in Psalm 77. I think so often we train Christians, people like me, pastors, we train Christians to pray these like tame, sort of nice, theologically correct prayers, right? Like here's how you talk to God, here's how you say it, Um, but look how raw this prayer is, look how honest this prayer is. Look how open and transparent this prayer is. If somebody came into my office and started saying these kinds of statements like, I don't think God is good, I don't think he's compassionate, I don't think he's loving, and started throwing these questions at me as a pastor, my first instinct would be to be like, hey, hey, don't, don't talk about God like that. I mean, this is a small office and lightning might strike it. I, I might get, you know, killed with you, so I don't want to, you know, don't go down that road. But, like, that's how I might start thinking with this person. And I might start defending God as they begin to have these kinds of questions in my office in a counseling scenario. But we have to ask the question, why are these kinds of prayers in the Bible? If we so easily jump to like nice, neat, tidy, theologically correct prayers in our, in our world, why are these kinds of prayers, these kinds of questions in the Bible? I think they're there for one reason. And it's to remind you that as a Christian, God can handle it. God can handle your questions. God can handle your open, raw, honest prayers. He can handle you being real with him. So Psalm 77, and many of their psalms are just like it, that the person is just kind of venting to God, praying their sadness, praying their emotions to him. But here's what you'll notice also in these passages, especially in Psalms. There's a point where they always take a turn. And the turn happens in this one in verse chapter 10. Look at verse chapter 10, or verse chapter, verse chapter 10. (laughs) Look at verse 10 in chapter 77. It says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So this person that's writing this chooses now not just to look at their present circumstances, 
but they choose to look back to the past because in this moment of depression, anxiety, fear, and sadness, sometimes the past is all you have to hang on to. Sometimes the past and just knowing who God is in his goodness, in his justice, in his uprightness, sometimes all you have to hang on to is the character of God knowing who he is. And this is the only thing that will pull you out of the muck and the mire that you find yourself in. A way to summarize this is this next statement. Sometimes, in order to move forward, go to my next slide. In order to move forward, you have to look backward. In order to move forward with God, you've got to be able to look backward and know who he is. Remind yourself who he is as our God. One of the ways that um, I do this in a real practical way is I love to get out. Uh, I used to, I've gone through seasons of life where I've kind of kept like this prayer journal or what I'm looking at in the Bible and written, written some thoughts down. And it's really weird to me to go back and look at my life as a 16-year-old high schooler. 20-some years ago, right? And I'm reading the words that I wrote back then and getting inside of your minds a little bit. So part of it's me creeping on you guys, but part of it is actually me just trying to think of like, be reminded of who God is and his faithfulness and his steadfastness. And in order for me to move forward, I've got to look backward knowing who he is. And this is the thing I think that the psalmist does so well, the psalms do so well, is they show you how to do this in real life. You, yeah, of course, you, you vent some things to God. You be honest about things with God. But then at some point, there takes a turn where you start to root yourself in truth again. You know who God is. And you begin to reflect on his character. And the past situations in his life where he has been faithful and seemed faithful and seemed loving and seemed compassionate with you, even if it doesn't match up to your current situation, you know that God is good. You know he's compassionate. You know he's loving for you. You know he's got your best interest in mind. So as we think through this topic today, I want to remind you that the key is you don't just go and just vent these things to whoever, wherever, whenever. That's not the key. The key also isn't to stuff these things, to stuff these things down, to not feel them. But the key is to pray your emotions in an open, honest way with God. As a result of that, I think you experience the kind of growth that God really wants to um, set you free to experience. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables.